Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. August 2015. We're celebrating Bryson's ninth birthday. His big brother, Connor, has written a card. Bryson can't read it, so Connor reads it to him. Bryson, I love you so much. You mean so much to me. I am really sorry. Sometimes you feel like I neglect you. And you don't know, you know how much you mean to me. Have a great birthday. Bryson from Connor. Birthdays are supposed to be happy occasions. But Bryson's birthdays are always tough for my wife, Laura, and me. Each year that passes is a reminder that Bryson isn't typical, that he's falling further behind in his developmental milestones, that he may never be able to walk, never be able to talk, never be able to feed himself or make his own life decisions or tell his own story. Each birthday is also another year without us being any closer to understanding what's causing Bryson's developmental delays. What's going on? In Bryson's brain. Bryson can't blow out his own candles, so one of us will do it for him. Sometimes it's Connor or maybe one of his cousins. Before they blow out the candles, Laura and I each make a birthday wish for Bryson. We never speak them out loud because that's the thing about wishes. If you do that, they may not come true. But I know that Laura's wish for Bryson is the same as mine. I'm Keith MacArthur, and this is Unlocking Bryson's Brain, a podcast series about my son Bryson, his rare disease, and our family's search for a medical miracle. We're looking for a cure for Bryson's mystery condition, but we can't get that without a diagnosis. And by the time Bryson turns nine, I've pretty much given up hope of ever solving this mystery. What I don't know at the time is that before Bryson turns 10, our genetics counselor will email Laura and tell her that after years of waiting, Bryson is finally about to get a diagnosis. I emailed her back and I just said, can you just tell me or can we have a chat on the phone? I just need to know if it's degenerative. Okay, so how do you want to do it? You are going to ask me questions. When people would ask little Ronnie Cohn what he wanted to be when he grew up, he didn't have to think twice. He was going to be a doctor, just like his grandfather. His marks weren't good enough to get straight into University of Dusseldorf's medical school, 
So he put all his hopes in impressing the admissions committee through an interview. When one committee member asked about his interest in medical research, Ronnie said he didn't want to waste his time in a lab. He just wanted to help patients. This was not the answer the admissions panel wanted, and Dusseldorf turned him down. But eventually, Ronnie found his way into medical school at a less prestigious public university in Germany. He spent time at the local hospital and became fascinated with the work of trauma surgeons. Yeah, I worked in an emergency room as a medical student, thinking the coolest thing is to repair injured shoulders. But in 1992, a close family friend gave birth to a child with a severe developmental delay. Doctors couldn't diagnose it. They called it a mitochondrial disease, a genetic condition where cells don't produce enough energy to make organs work properly. I was a second-year medical student, and my friend called me and said, what's the mitochondrial disease? And so I looked it up in the dictionary and said, disease of the mitochondria. I'm like, duh. So that's how I ended up in genetics. Okay. And so, and that family friend, or that, that child, I guess, grown up now, still sort of inspires your research today. Is that right? It does. And interestingly enough, 27 years later, we still don't have a diagnosis in him. He lives in Switzerland, and we're actually just in the process of trying to sequence his genome. Two decades later, Ronnie is working as a geneticist, specializing in hypotonia at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore when Laura tracks him down. Hypotonia, or floppy baby syndrome, that was Bryson's first diagnosis. Bryson's about 18 months old at the time, and after a year and a half of searching in Canada, Laura is ready to look outside of the country for help in getting Bryson diagnosed. She finds Dr. Cohn's contact information on the hospital website and emails him. Dr. Cohn, I just learned about your practice. I have an 18-month-old son with severe hypotonia. I told him a little bit about Bryson, and I expected this email to go out into the universe and probably never hear back. And then he responded. Dear Laura, please contact Emily. He emailed me back that same day. Many doctors in Canada won't even give their email addresses to patients, but here was this busy, important doctor in the United States responding more quickly, more directly than Bryson's actual physicians. Laura and Ronnie exchange emails, and we start making plans to visit him in Baltimore. Dear Dr. Cohn, thank you so much for getting back to me. We have been in touch Dear with Dear Laura, I would absolutely be able to work with these samples. Hi, Dr. Cohn. I've been in touch with the International Department at Johns Hopkins. It takes three years, but eventually, we make the decision to go. Then, before we can book our flights, a crazy coincidence. One afternoon when Laura is browsing a discussion board for parents of kids with hypotonia, she learns that Dr. Ronnie Cohn is moving to Canada. She reaches out, and he emails back confirming that, yes, he's moving to the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. And I was with my mom at the time, and I had just pulled up this email on my phone, and I I think I must have just exclaimed or something, oh my God, out loud. And my mom kind of jumped and looked at me, and I told her, Dr. Cohen is coming, because she knew all about him. I told her all about his work, and I said, he's coming to Toronto. He's coming to Sick Kids. He said he'll see Bryson. And we both did a little happy dance in the backyard. I think it was summer, and we were just having a little, you know, Jump for joy out there. And I remember when I moved here, I reached out to you 
saying, you know, I'm here now, maybe I could meet you. And then you came to my clinic. Our first appointment with Dr. Cohn starts as a repeat of everything we've been through so many times before. Questions from a genetics counselor about Bryson's birth and whether or not Laura and I could be related. Bryson gets weighed and his head circumference is measured and we're asked to get him out of his wheelchair and stand him up so they can assess his strength and balance. And when we meet Dr. Cohn, he seems different than all of the other doctors. When we call him Dr. Cohn, he tells us to call him Ronnie. And he offers new hope. A genetic sequencing test that would compare Bryson's DNA to Laura's and mine. The test only involves about 1% of the human genome, but it's the most important part. Every gene that contains the recipe for proteins, the building blocks for all our flesh and bones, and brains. The test is expensive, over $10,000, and it's not covered by the provincial healthcare system. We ask if we should try to come up with the money for the test, but Ronnie says he'll make a special request to the Ministry of Health. Or if that doesn't work, maybe he could do the test through his research budget. We asked Dr. Cohn what we should do to help Bryson in the meantime. Love him, he tells us. And we do. So much that it's hard to wait for this test. We wait for the better part of a year. But eventually we're told that the funding has come through and the test is a go. And there's good news. We don't need to bring Bryson in for another difficult blood test. They have enough of his blood stored from previous tests. The bad news? More waiting. Life goes on. We try to create the best possible, most normal possible life for both our kids. We take them to the playground and the science center and Canada's Wonderland. We go on family vacations to cottages and Disney World and even Europe. We know it's important to have this family time, but getting Bryson in and out of his oversized car seat and into his collapsible wheelchair and navigating public spaces that aren't as accessible as they should be, it's exhausting. And sometimes, it's heartbreaking. One of the first times we try to fly with Bryson, he decides he wants to kick the seat in front of him. So we spend the entire flight trying to hold down his legs and apologizing to the impatient businessman in front of us. After that, we always make special arrangements when we fly. I usually sit beside Bryson, and Laura sits in front of him, taking the brunt of his kicks. There's this sound Bryson makes. I sometimes call it singing, but it's really more of a happy wail, if that makes sense. He can get pretty loud, and sometimes it... Sometimes it makes having a conversation near Bryson impossible. And as much as Bryson seems to enjoy going to the movies, we don't want his singing to disturb the rest of the theater. So we take turns missing big chunks of the movie while we walk with him in the lobby until he's finished expressing himself. In restaurants, Bryson can be especially loud and restless. More than once, he's used his hands or feet to knock a plate off the table where it smashes on the floor. The staff are usually patient and kind, but that's not always the case with our fellow diners. 
One time, we hear a young couple ask not to be seated near Bryson. Another time, an older woman is so offended by Bryson's singing that she takes it upon herself to nastily mimic Bryson's sounds throughout the meal. And then there's the time we take our boys to a new Thai-slash-Japanese restaurant in our neighborhood. It's all you can taste. You order what you want from the menu, and they bring it to your table. For Bryson, we bring a thermos of macaroni and cheese because it can be hard to find food he can eat in restaurants. We order our first round of food, and it comes quickly. Tom Yum soup, sushi, green curry chicken, and spicy octopus. We order the next round. Mango chicken comes quickly, but we wait almost an hour for the rest of the food. Despite the wait, the kids are in good spirits. Connor is making up a variation on Pokemon he calls Connormon, and Bryson is communicating in the only way he knows how, through his songful, deep-throated vocalizations. A manager drops by. I assume she's there to apologize for the delay. She's not. You need to tell your son to be quiet, she says, waving in Bryson's direction. Other guests are complaining that they can't enjoy their meals in peace. We're stunned. We point out what we think should be obvious, that Bryson has severe mental and physical disabilities, and we can't just tell him to be quiet. But the manager shrugs us off. More than one table has complained, she says. We ask her to put the rest of our meal in takeout containers, and we leave. So, yeah, people can be jerks. But there are good people, too. Lots of them. Another time, another restaurant. Guests complain about Bryson's noise and say we should have to leave. Instead, the owner tells them Bryson has every right to stay, but they are no longer welcome. The people who just smile at Bryson when we walk by on the street or the grocery store, those people warm my heart. And... There's a surprising number of people who ask if they can pray for Bryson, especially when we're traveling in the States. Sometimes it's awkward, like the time at the Orlando IHOP when they held Bryson's hands during a prayer that went on for nearly five minutes. But I know they mean well. There have been so many wonderful teachers, doctors, waiters, and caregivers in Bryson's life that I can't mention them all but I've got a single out too. So what do you want, a mohawk? <laughs> Suzanne cuts Bryson's hair, which, I don't know, maybe sounds like not a big deal, but believe me, it's a big deal. Bryson, I got you. There you go. For the first seven years of Bryson's life, haircuts were a harrowing experience. He hated them. He would scream and shake his head and try to swat away the scissors with his hands. But with Suzanne, it's different. She spends time with him before she starts cutting his hair, talking to him, telling him what she's going to do. We're going to do a nice, short haircut so it's nice and easy. And it works. Bryson now sits calmly while Suzanne uses scissors and even clippers in his hair. Let's do the clippers. And then there's Edna. You're happy now? You're happy? (laughs) You're smiling. When Bryson was three, Laura went back to work in a children's hospital. So Edna has worked with us as Bryson's tough but gentle caregiver 
for more than a decade. And you've been here for 10 years. (laughs) Yeah, 10 years. Over time, she's become a third parent to Bryson. She's part of our family. And sometimes she understands Bryson's complex needs better than we do. You didn't eat your lunch today. That's not good. You should eat all your food and milk. Drink your milk. Edna grew up in the Philippines, the fourth of ten children. Her mom was 47 when she gave birth to her last child, a daughter who was born with serious medical challenges. But when she was three years, she passed away. Yeah, so um, that's why it's so close to with the special needs kids. So if I see if I see that kind of kids and I love I like I feel so bad because I'm gonna miss my my sister. Yeah. What was your sister's name? Janet. Yeah, Janet. Janet. We're supposed to get seven hours of government support each week to help Bryson get ready for school in the mornings, but that service is grossly unreliable. Laura and I have had good jobs and help from family. So we're fortunate that we've been able to hire Edna as a caregiver to take care of Bryson on weekdays when he gets home from school. I know other families aren't so lucky, and I honestly can't imagine how they cope. I know I shouldn't complain, because my life is easy compared to what Bryson has to go through on a daily basis. But sometimes... I feel sorry for myself. Sometimes it's hard to be Bryson's dad. When I'm with him, it can be exhausting, lifting this 75-pound teenager out of bed and onto the chairlift and into his wheelchair. There's the financial burden of all the medical equipment and therapy and support workers that's only partly covered by government and insurance. And on weekends or evenings when Edna's not around, it feels like my life isn't really my own. Taking care of Bryson is harder now than when he was a newborn. He needs constant care, and it's a challenge for one person to manage. So if I want to go to the gym or do yard work or have a shower, I need to negotiate the time with Laura. Then there's the fear that maybe he won't make it through the night. We know of kids with rare diseases who have died, suddenly, and unexpectedly. So we're constantly slipping into his dark bedroom to lean in close and make sure we can hear him breathing. And of course, there's the constant worry about who's going to take care of Bryson when Laura and I aren't around anymore. But the biggest challenge of all are Bryson's seizures. Or maybe they're not seizures, we're still not sure. We can tell when one is coming because Bryson will stick out his tongue and wrap both arms around his head. Then his limbs tighten and his feet contract and twist. Sometimes he starts laughing uncontrollably. Other times he screams and grunts. Connor, who is now 16, has witnessed hundreds of his brother's seizures. So usually he starts off laughing. He either starts off laughing or kind of just humming very loudly and putting his hands on his head almost as if 
It may sound kind of graphic, but to protect your head from a blunt force. If it was being applied in multiple areas uh, towards your head. Then he gets violent. He'll start to kick or scratch or bite himself or those around him. He kind of like cradles his body as if every muscle in his body is twitching and tensing and usually tries to kick the things around him like tables or just kicks the air in order to kind of like flail about. Um, Usually after around maybe a minute starts kind of screaming manically. And this like very intense period can last anywhere from like on a good day a minute to on a very bad day like 20 and he usually looks either really happy afterwards or just really disappointed almost so doctors are are often skeptical about whether they're seizures and they sometimes ask us like is it just a tantrum like do you ever wonder that is it possible that it's that You know, he has tantrums occasionally. Like, we know when they're tantrums, but when he's literally screaming and bashing his legs against the wall and, like, you know, scratching his arm so hard that he bleeds, that doesn't usually happen, but it has happened on occasion. It's not just a tantrum at that point. And the other thing about these episodes... They don't just start abruptly, they end abruptly too. The flailing stops suddenly, and Bryson curls up still and makes a clicking sound with his mouth. I wish Bryson could tell us what these episodes feel like for him. What's going on in his mind as he flails around and tries to hurt himself? He's had a bunch of EEGs, tests where sensors are glued to his scalp to measure electrical activity. These tests suggest that Bryson's brain is prone to seizures, but they've never been able to pick up one in progress. So his first neurologist, remember the one who left the hospital to go for a run just as our appointment was about to begin? He rules out seizures entirely. And when we ask him what we can do to help with these violent episodes, he basically tells us to deal with it. But that seems impossible. We're worried that Bryson's violent episodes might seriously hurt him or one of us. So we transform the family living room into a safe space for Bryson, covering the floors and walls with gymnastic mats and pool noodles. But he still gets hurt. And of course, we get battle scars too. On Sunday nights, we measure how hard a weekend it's been for Bryson by how many scratches and bite marks and bruises he has and we have. We're mostly successful at keeping Connor out of harm's way. But as he gets older, it's hard for him to stand aside while he watches his brother hurt himself and his parents. I see myself as kind of a protector. And when I see Bryson flailing about and kicking you and hurting himself, and the two of you, it's hard for me to just idly stand by Well, these three people that are literally my family are just getting beat up right in front of me. I think, though, the other piece that doesn't get recognized is almost like a post-traumatic stress. 
So when you've been in situations where a child you love, you know, in his challenging moments is is pinching you and biting you and screaming, um, and you're trying to help them, you know, that that's stressful and it's tiring and it's scary and it breaks your heart. And that repeatedly, you know, either several times a day or every day for months, years is, is exhausting. And you kind of feel like you've been beaten up. Um, and then you can never talk about feeling like you've been beaten up because what kind of mom would talk about that, right? You just, you do it because you love them and but it doesn't make it easier and your heart breaks for them at the same time. It's very complicated. Laura's toughest memory of Bryson was a vacation with her parents and her brother's family. We were surrounded by the kind of calming Ontario wilderness that looks like something out of a group of seven painting. But this week was anything but peaceful. We were at a cottage with my family, and Bryson had been having really bad episodes for probably two days, and so much screaming and crying and kicking, and we were exhausted. I think everyone there was exhausted, and we all had our moments to kind of go find some peace and solace, but um, and our geneticist was amazing because he was on email with me trying to think of a kind of emergency prescription that we could give to Bryson to calm him down. But we'd kind of run out of options and at one point he calmed down and I took him out to the dock and we were sitting there and and lo and behold, he starts having an episode, a seizure on the dock. And I start bringing him back in and there's these big rocks and I'm trying to climb over them and carry this boy who was, oh gosh, he was probably eight or nine at the time maybe even a little bit older. And he bit my arm (laughs) so hard that I screamed out. I think I scared the crap out of everybody in our family and um, got him inside. And I just remember dissolving into this like fit of tears because my arm was this big purple, had this huge purple welt on it, and I was exhausted, and I was so sad because I thought, this is family vacation, and Bryson deserves to enjoy a lake and peace, and we as a family deserve that as well, and I was pissed off that why couldn't we at least just have this? Just a moment to enjoy and feel comfort and safety and relaxation. That's why getting him the help he needed has been such a journey for us. And so many doctors just didn't believe it was seizures or didn't believe it was anything that could be treated. But but what is what does a family do? We see a new neurologist. And at first, he's just as skeptical about these being seizures. But then... Right there on the first appointment with this doctor, Bryson has an episode. And the doctor says, yeah, this looks like a seizure. Not a typical seizure, but a more rare form of epilepsy. So we put Bryson on anti-seizure medication. And the change is instant and remarkable. 
For six days, Bryson doesn't have a single episode. But it doesn't last. On the seventh day, these episodes return, and we're back to the drawing board. Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. Early on, one of Bryson's doctors told us that in her experience with kids with rare diseases, dads tend to assume the role of fixer. They want to solve the problem that can't be solved, cure the disease that can't be cured. She said moms tend to be more practical, putting in the hard work of taking kids to physiotherapy and speech therapy and the feeding clinic. Now, I'm not a fan of gender-based generalizations, but I guess in this case, it's true enough for Laura and me. And while we're both desperate to get a diagnosis for Bryson, we have different motivations. For me, it's about knowing what Bryson has so we can find a cure. For Laura, it's about ruling out the worst-case scenarios. So that's what's on Laura's mind in 2015 when she gets an email from our genetics counselor telling us the unthinkable. She said, uh, we received the results back and we'd like to see you and Keith um, because something has come. Um, Or we have a diagnosis. We think we have a diagnosis. And I remember my heart in my throat, like just thinking, this can't be real. I was at work when I read it and... I just thought, how, are you kidding me? Really? We're, how can this be? And then I remember thinking, okay, I can wait for the appointment. She made it very quickly. I think it was in like a few days. Maybe it was Monday and that was Friday, something like that. And, but I, I emailed her back and I just said, um, can you just tell me or can we have a chat on the phone? I just need to know if it's degenerative. And I can wait for the actual diagnosis. You don't have to tell me what it is, but please just tell me if it's degenerative because I need to know that right now. And um, we got on a phone call and she said, no, we'll tell you the details of it, but I can, it is not a degenerative condition. So how did it feel, like, just, just to hear that it wasn't degenerative, what was that, what did that feel like? Oh, a huge relief, a huge relief. Because, of course, in the back of my mind this whole time, that's where I was going. I was always looking for signs of regression and, you know, looking for signs of progression, but also really hoping he wasn't going backward. Any kind of news that would give us hope for the future is really what I was looking for. I don't think I can overemphasize how huge it was to learn that Bryson's condition didn't appear to be degenerative. For nearly a decade, we had lived in fear that someday, suddenly, Bryson could take a turn for the worse. That maybe this was one of those diseases that could become fatal when Bryson reached a certain age. But there was still so much we didn't know when we packed Bryson into the car one December morning and drove for our appointment to get the full results. Was this a well-known disease? 
Was Bryson capable of learning to walk or talk? Was there a cure? You know that feeling when you're about to get big news, but you don't know if it's good or bad, like whether you got the promotion, and your heart is beating fast with excitement and trepidation? That's how I feel when we arrive at Dr. Ronnie Cohn's office. So I'm glad when he gets straight to the point. We think we've found something, Dr. Cohn says. He smiles, more out of kindness than happiness. He explains that Bryson has a variant in a gene known as GRIN1, which codes the brain's NMDA receptor, which in turn plays a critical role in learning and memory. If this is going over your head, yeah, it goes over mine too. I'm the guy who struggled in grade 10 biology. I'm going to unpack all of this later on. All you need to understand for now is that Dr. Cohn has identified this one gene that seems to be the cause of all of Bryson's struggles. And there's more. They've checked our blood too, and neither Laura nor I have this GRIN1 mutation. It's what they call a spontaneous de novo mutation, which means Bryson didn't inherit the condition from either of us. And yes, Dr. Cohn confirms the good news. The GRIN1 doesn't appear to be degenerative. The bad news, there's not much known about GRIN1-related diseases. And there aren't any cures or treatments. Laura is a nervous passenger, so she usually drives when we're together. But she asks me to drive home after the genetics appointment so she can call her mom and share the news. After a teary conversation, Laura consults Dr. Google, typing G-R-I-N and the number one into the search engine doesn't reveal much. Laura finds studies published about research that's been done on mice with mutated grin genes and research about how this gene might play a role in schizophrenia. But we can't find anything that tells us what we really want to know. What does this diagnosis mean for Bryson's future? Laura asks how I feel about the appointment. Good. Good that it's not degenerative. Good that we're finally done searching for the cause. And Laura feels the same. But there's more. For her, the diagnosis is like an enormous weight has been lifted off her shoulders. Getting a diagnosis meant that I could stop looking backward and searching for those answers. What had I done wrong? What happened? What happened during my pregnancy? What happened during my childbirth? Just racked with those questions day in and, and day out. Honestly, they would follow me wherever I went. And knowing meant I could look ahead to the what ifs and what can we do. There was a huge healing power for me in getting that diagnosis and knowing that I, I wasn't, you know, at the root of that, that it wasn't my fault. We know there have to be others with this GRIN1 mutation, and we're desperate to connect with their families. It takes a couple hours of searching, but we finally hit the jackpot. We find an Instagram video of a little girl in Norway with a GRIN1 mutation. With her big, beautiful eyes and porcelain skin, she reminds us of Bryson. We find an article from 12 months earlier in the Pittsburgh Tribune Review about Hunter, 
a toddler with a grin one mutation who can't walk or talk, but seems to love the Pittsburgh Penguins. Watching Penguins games calms Hunter, just like Blue Jays games do for Bryson. The article quotes Hunter's doctor, saying, the disease is so rare, she only knows of five other cases worldwide. And then we find a private Facebook group called Giggling Grin Ones, where families of seven patients are exchanging information and firsthand experience about this rare condition. We connect with families across the United States at first, but eventually around the world. We learn there's no name for this disease, so parents just say their kids have Grin 1. The patient journeys are similar to Bryson's. As infants, they got diagnosed with low muscle tone. Then, genetic sequencing identified a mutation in the Grin 1 gene. Like Bryson, most of these kids can't walk or talk, and several suffer from seizures. Most of the Grin 1 patients are younger than Bryson. But there's one young woman with Grin 1, Olivia. She's in her mid-20s, and she can walk and talk and feed herself. She's still got severe developmental delays and can't live on her own, but she offers us so much hope. Could Bryson do all this someday? Finding this community of families like ours, that's the biggest difference this diagnosis makes in our lives. Just knowing that we're not alone, that Bryson's not alone, somehow changes everything. At least for Laura and me. For Bryson, nothing really changes. He stays on the same anticonvulsant drugs for his episodes, and he goes to the same therapies, physio, speech, feeding. But we're hopeful the diagnosis could lead to new treatments that might change his life in all kinds of ways. In one of our follow-up appointments, we tell Dr. Ronnie Cohn about all the ways Bryson's diagnosis has changed our lives, not only by giving us hope for treatments and a cure, but by freeing Laura from some of the guilt that she was to blame, and by giving us this new community of Grin families. He's heard a similar message from other parents. I think it has been, still today, probably the most humbling professional experience that... To be honest, I probably underestimated the value of just having an answer. He says that understanding how much patients and their families value a diagnosis has changed the way he practices medicine, putting more emphasis now on finding one. But that's not all that's changed. Until recently, when a parent got a diagnosis for a child's rare genetic disease, they might hear that not only was there no cure yet, there might never be one. But today, things are different. Because we're at a remarkable point in the history of medical science. Many researchers predict that over the next decade or two, dozens of diseases that we think of as incurable, everything from cancers to Alzheimer's to rare genetic conditions like GRIN1, could be cured. Hi, I'm Laura. Laura, lovely to meet you. Nice to meet you. As part of our journey, Laura and I meet with Omar Khwaja, the chief medical officer of Voyager, a Boston-area gene therapy company entering clinical trials for a potential cure for Huntington's disease. When I was at medical school, and I did, I did a PhD in molecular genetics. And it was the time that all these genes were being discovered. You know, it was a really exciting time. And everyone thought that treatments would be around the corner. Well, 
they weren't. But now they really are, you know, like, so... One example. Remember how we had to wait six months to rule out a terrifying degenerative genetic disease, SMA, the one that kills toddlers? Well, the FDA has approved a gene therapy cure for that disease. Infants who are given the treatment are able to defy the natural progression of SMA and learn to sit and walk independently. It's too early to tell how long the gene therapy treatment will keep them alive, but the early results are promising. The cure is expensive. Crazy expensive. Like $700,000 for the first year expensive. And we'll talk more about costs in future episodes. But it's a cure. A real cure. And what's amazing to me is that, yes, scientists played an enormous role in curing this disease. But so did parents. And almost every disease that's been cured over the past 20 years has been driven by patients or parents raising money, sponsoring research, connecting scientists, and nagging the hell out of anyone who will listen. About four years ago, I got asked to see a little girl at a hospital in London uh, who develops quite early newborn epilepsy, and I, I went to see the family as a favour. It turned out that her maternal aunt was a geneticist and did arrange to do exome sequencing. That baby had a has a has a genetic disorder of, at that time thought to be incredibly rare. Um, and that family started a foundation and three years later there are ten compounds in clinical trials for that for that condition. Wow. So I am always amazed about what the power of patient patient families can actually accomplish. Um, because, of course, it's top of mind every single moment of the day for them, you know. And uh, that just that focus and drive, it, it's an incredible multiplier, actually, for, to, to, you know, to, to get drug development activities off the ground. And in our first visit to see Ronnie Cohn after we get our diagnosis, he offers us hope that someday there might be a cure for Bryson. He tells us about a new scientific discovery that allows scientists to rewrite human DNA. This new technology, CRISPR, gives doctors the ability to take a gene with the disease-causing mutation and replace it with a healthy one. Dr. Cohn tells us it's not ready for use on humans yet, but maybe CRISPR could be used to cure genetic mutations like the one Bryson is suffering from. The one that finally has a name. Grin One. We're going to hear more from Ronnie in the next episode when we talk about CRISPR as a potential cure for Bryson. But for now, let me jump forward in time and share a couple updates about Dr. Ronnie Cohn. First, in 2019, Ronnie was named Chief Executive Officer of Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children, the young student who was initially rejected from medical school for wanting to focus on patients instead of research, is now leading Canada's largest children's hospital. As a family that has been in touch with this kind and patient-centered doctor for more than a decade, we couldn't be happier. Second, a few weeks ago, Laura and I received an email from our friend Ronnie. The subject line reads, Something I want to share with you. Dear Laura and Keith, 
I hope this email finds you well. I'm reaching out today to share a very personal experience with you. I'm not sure whether I ever mentioned to you the reason why I've decided to go into pediatrics and genetics. 27 years ago, our closest friends had a boy who had severe developmental delay, more severe than Bryson, and who was initially diagnosed with a mitochondrial disease. Today, my friend called me from Switzerland and told me they diagnosed him with a GRIN1 mutation. You can probably imagine that this is the closest I have ever been personally to experience what it means to establish a diagnosis after so many years. Anyway, I hope you don't mind, but I just had to share this with you, given the history and connection we have. Very warm wishes, Ronnie. Next time on Unlocking Bryson's Brain. The cutting-edge science that could cure dozens of genetic diseases. This fundamental technology for modifying DNA. Offers promise. I think all we have is our hope. If we give up our hope, what do we have left? Raises doubts. I understand that some people need to have hope sometimes, but personally, I don't think it's going to happen. And evokes difficult questions. The implications become much bigger than just saving one life or treating one person. It opens the possibility of, in the long term, changing the direction of human evolution. Unlocking Bryson's Brain is hosted and written by me, Keith MacArthur. Our associate producer is Graham McDonald who also does our mixing and sound design. Our digital producer is Emily Canal. Chris Oak is our story editor. Our video producer is Evan Agard. Original music in this episode by Graham McDonald. The senior producer of CBC Podcasts is Tanya Springer. And our executive producer is Arif Nurani. To learn more about Grin One, visit curegrin.org. You can find bonus content for this podcast on Instagram. We're at CBC Podcasts. Do you have tips to help us unlock Bryson's brain? Or your own story about navigating the medical world with a rare or undiagnosed condition? We'd love to hear from you. Reach us at unlocking at cbc.ca. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.